Well, amen. Thank you all. It was good to see everybody this morning. If you have your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we kind of pick up. Right around the verse 6. I don't know if you're like me or maybe you are, maybe you're not like me, but uh, there is something within me that really, really appreciates excellence. We have a uh, kind of maybe a mantra here at Eastwood uh, that uh, whatever we do, we want to do it, it with excellence. So excellence in all things. When I was the worship guy and we talked with our, when our, with our praise team for, you know, really for a long time, months, uh, trying to figure out what uh, excellence in worship is because we wanted to do everything with excellence. What did that mean? And we kind of basically came up with this phrase that excellence is really just distraction-free. That was kind of our goal within the worship team was we wanted to make sure that whatever happened with on the platform, did, we did not... Uh, detract from what was really happening in the seats, right? So we've, we often joke, it'd be great if we could, if, you know, I would have loved to have led worship behind a black screen so I couldn't be seen, just to worship so that it's not about will at all in any way, shape, or form, but it is about directing our praise uh, to the Lord first and foremost. So we talk about excellence in all things and being excellent at things. It, and there's kind of a bar, you kind of have to de- decide on what excellence is to some degree, but I really really appreciate uh, things done really, really well and done with excellence. And it doesn't matter really what it is. I love guitar, playing guitar. I love guitar players. I wish I was better at it. I am not an excellent guitar player by any way, shape, or uh, form. But one of my favorite guitar players of all time is Eric Clapton. I think when Eric Clapton plays the guitar, I think God blessed him and said, hey, you're going to play guitar, and the dude just does it, right? And there are hundreds of other people who just play instruments just like that. You know, John Mayer's another example. Phil Kagey, uh, who a uh, strong Christian man uh, who's a finger-playing guitar machine. He's incredible, one of the best guitar players ever. And God just put their hand on him and said, you are going to play guitar, and he does, and he's done it with excellence. So it could be with whether it's a, um, whether that's a musician or whether it's an athlete, whatever it may be, we honestly, we really, really do appreciate excellence. And you may or may not, you may, you may kind of in your mind think, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal to me or not, but I guarantee you, you're not going to pay $100 a ticket to watch Will play guitar for three hours, but you'll pay $100 an hour to go watch anybody other than Will play guitar for an hour because they're just incredible at what they do. And so we all appreciate, to some degree, excellence. One of the, um, one of the athletes that was probably... A lot of athletes are known for their work ethic. Michael Jordan being one. You think about uh, like Tiger Woods and his ability to, to do what he did in the golf course, especially in the early 2000s, in his uh, work ethic, if you will, on the golf course. But it's hard to find somebody in the sports world who has a greater work ethic than, uh, than Kobe Bryant. And many of you are familiar with that name. If you're not, basketball player for the Lakers. And uh, passed away just a few years ago, but um, he was interviewed and talking, uh, in, in this interview, he, he was asked about his summer workout routine. And many of y'all are familiar with this particular story, but I want to read for you his answer to the question about how do you go about doing your work and your workouts. So was in this interview, Kobe stated, he says that your job is to be the best basketball player that you can be. To do that, you have to practice and you have to train. You want to train as much as you can and as often as you can. So you get up at 10 a.m. If you get up at 10 a.m. in the morning, you train from, which 10 a.m. is like, man, that's youth pastor hours, right? Like, that's awesome. 
10 a.m. You train uh, at 12, and you train for two hours. So you go 12 to 2 p.m. Then you let your body rest and recover. That you got to eat during that time. And then you go start training again at 6 p.m. And you train from 6 to 8 p.m. Then you go eat dinner. You go to bed. That's two sessions during the day. He says, now imagine if you wake up at 3 a.m. And you train from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. And you go home. You eat breakfast. You relax. Now you're back at it again from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Then you relax. And you go back at it again from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. And you go back home and you relax. And you go back at it again from... 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. So now you do that, and as the years go on, the separation you have with your competitors and your peers just grows and grows and grows. It becomes larger and larger and larger. By year five or six, it doesn't matter what kind of work they're doing in the summer. They're never going to catch up because they are five years behind. Kobe Bryant had an incredible work ethic. It's one thing to say it in an interview, but it's another thing to live it. And if you ever look at his life or, or Google anything about him or watch any videos, he was an incredibly hard worker. When I was in uh, high school, I worked for a grocery store, my first real job when I turned 16, uh, for United Grocery Store. And I remember going to work, and I started out sacking groceries, and then I moved to Checker, then I moved to this, well, I guess, this hierarchy of things, and you started, you know, filling shelves and stocking all this stuff like that. But I remember I had this manager who, um, who had an incredible work ethic. I think he was more of a workaholic than he was anything, maybe not so much a work ethic, but he was a workaholic. And I remember we would walk around, if we were on our break, we'd be on our break sitting in the break room, and he would sit there, and he would just stick his head in, and he would look, and I think he was joking, at least I think he was. Um, he would look in, and he would sit there and say, you know what, boys... If you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. And then he would walk out, you know. And if at any point we were ever, walk, we were, uh, co-workers were standing on an aisle talking about something and stalking, he would be like, listen, boys, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. And so we'd sit there and we would just drive us crazy, drive, just frustrate the fire out of me when he'd say stuff like that until I had kids. And then it becomes way more fun when you can look at him and you say, you got time to lean, you got time to clean. One of the things that I think was important even about that small little lesson is that even those, those small little sayings that he said, hopefully jokingly, and that I tell my kids, it, it instills a work ethic. It, it makes you realize, and as, as us as teenagers, that they had a certain expectation of how it is we were to work when we were on the clock. And Paul here we should be honest with you, I want to be honest with the word this morning, is that Paul begins to meddle. He's going to be meddling in our affairs this morning, and it's not, it may not be super fun. But nonetheless, Paul was having to correct an issue in the church in Thessalonica. And that, that issue happens to be a work ethic, and how it is that they handled themselves in regards to their jobs, and how it is that they worked. Now, we're not sure a reason for this concern that Paul had uh, in regards to the, Thessal the Thessalonian church and their poor, act, uh, their poor work ethic. But whatever it was, it was reflecting on the Lord and his church. We're not certain if the, the church was, it's, it was a predominantly Greek church, so we're not sure if, it, if the influence of the Greek culture had influenced the, or was influencing the church, which means that the, the Greeks did not have a high regard for manual labor. 
They didn't have a high regard for manual labor at all. They preferred, you know, learning and, and sitting and, and watching other people work. So it could have been something like that. It was a Greek church. It very well could have been something along those lines where the church just wasn't doing what was really expected of them. They were allowing other people to work, but not themselves. Or it could have been, um, another option is, is that Paul had just done some extensive teaching on the day of the Lord and telling the church that the day of the Lord was near. And so there may have been some people, many of us in this room may have been, been those people where they... They decided that, hey, since the day of the Lord is near, I don't need to work. I can sell all of my stuff. I can just kind of coast until Jesus comes. And so, therefore, they're taking advantage of other people within the church to meet their needs. And so Paul here begins to meddle in their life. So either way, one thing is for certain is that the church in Thessalonica needed a tad bit of correction. So what can we glean from this this morning as believers and as Christians within this room, speaking directly to Christians this morning? Well, as Christians, we must understand that how we live, that how we live validates what we believe. So we have to understand that how we live validates what we believe. So if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, if you would stand with me in honor of God's word and let's read together. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the, with the tradition that you received from us. For you, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might... Uh, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to, uh, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what is said in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your word, and I pray, God, that you would teach us from it, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us Lord, that through this passage this morning, Lord, that we would live lives that are holy and acceptable to you, that our lives would bring you honor in every aspect of our life, just not what happens within these walls, but what happens with the walls of our work and whatever it is that we do outside of these walls. God, may you be Lord of our life, and may our lives bring you glory, and we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So what does this passage teach us about how we are to live our life in the workplace? Should that even matter, how it is that we live our life in the workplace? 
Well, the first thing that we see that uh, within this particular passage of Scripture is that Christians, this is, again, for just you and I, that Christians in this room, that we must live an earnest life. We must live an earnest life. And what do we mean by an earnest life? We mean a life that is sincere, a life that is based on conviction. Paul says in verse 6, he says, Now we command you. These are the marching orders that he has given to the church. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord. So he's talking about brothers. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about anybody outside of the church. He's talking about those of us in this room who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus. He says, We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's given it power. This isn't just by saying, Paul, Paul said, listen, by my name, he's saying, by the Lord Jesus Christ, do these things here. He says, you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. This idea of walking means it's a constant thing. It's not like a one-time deal where you decided to take a nap on a Saturday afternoon instead of doing what you really needed to do, but you were tired and so you did it. This is the guy who continually takes a nap and doesn't get anything done. He's, he's talking about the guy who continually walks in Idleness, same word we, we, we can say idleness is laziness. So that person who is, who is known and who's constantly walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions and not walking in the traditions, the teachings that the, this church here has received from Paul. Now, what is it that Paul is most likely talking about? He's probably talking about in a previous letter in a previous letter, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, where he begins, he says, We urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk prof- properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul here says, and he's commanded the church in previous teachings that we are to Work hard with our hands as we've instructed you so that may we, we may do what? That we may properly walk properly before outsiders. So Paul sits there and says that the way that we handle our business when we're at work is a testament of what it is and who it is that we worship. But why is it that we are to, deceive, or we are to distance ourselves from somebody who is walking idly? He says it. Just like, if you're with somebody who is walking idly, distance yourselves from them. Why is it that he says for us to do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says that um, don't be deceived for bad company corrupts good character. So Paul's saying that this, this idea of being idle or being lazy is a character issue. And if we hitch our arms with somebody who is being lazy or not doing what God has called them or commanded them to do, they're going to hold us back and to drag us down is a character issue. And we are to distance ourselves from those people. Man, that sounds harsh. But Paul commands it. He says, this is our command. These are our marching orders. That those in the church who are faithfully working, they are to distance themselves from those who are idle and those who are lazy. And how is it that we can discern who that is? Well, well it's, he tells us, he says, it's the ones who don't practice what it is that they've been taught or what they've been commanded to do, what we have commanded them to do. They're not working hard. 
But this is a biblical principle, but it doesn't just apply. It does not just apply to what it is that we do within our jobs. This applies to every aspect of our life. Not just our work, not just our work jobs. This is our personal life, and this is our church life. We are to work, and what Paul's calling the church to do is to work and to serve in such a manner that the Lord is glorified through their work. So what does this look like in the home life? For you dads in there, because I'm a dad, I don't know what it's like to be a mom. For you dads in the room, what does this look like for us? What does it mean to work hard? This means is that we, yes, we work hard at our, at our work so we can provide for our families. We bring in the money so that we can pay for our bills and put food on the table and put clothes on our kids' backs and all those things. But there's also, it goes beyond that. It's, it's that time when you have made a promise to your kids that you're going to do something. So when your kid comes up to you and says, Dad, my, will you help me fix my bike or put my bike together tonight? And you say yes, and you roll in at 10 o'clock because work was crazy and tired. But you've made a promise to that kid, even though he can't ride it because it's dark outside, and you put that bike together, and you have it ready for him the next morning. So when he wakes up, you can sit there, and you can look at the bike, and the kid can say, my dad did what he was going to say, he, or my dad did what he said he was going to do. It's about working hard, and it's about keeping promises. It's husbands, it's doing what you said you would do for your wives and loving your family well. What does this look like for the church life? When you think about how it is that we're going to accomplish anything within our area, within the Alberton and the greater Bowling Green area, how is it that anything is gonna, is gonna happen within this place, within these buildings? First and foremost, it's gonna be the Holy Spirit. It's not gonna be anything that we can do, I can do, you can do, anything on our own that's gonna, that's gonna reach our community. It's gonna reach the homes that are coming right next door. Nothing is gonna happen on our own power. So we, first and foremost, we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit to do his work and do his business, to do what he does. But then we have to come along behind him and be willing to work hard and to serve hard. It's not by sitting idly by and watching others serve, but by jumping into the mix and putting to work the gifts that God has given us. We serve together. We serve alongside each other and we serve hard. As Christians, we're to live lives of conviction. For, for Paul, this idea of what it means to be a Christian was worthless, was absolutely worthless unless it found its way into the very fabric of our life. Every aspect of our life should be permeated with the grace and the goodness of God. We should serve and we should work diligently to bring glory and honor to his name and to make his name famous throughout all of the earth. If we take God's word seriously, then we will take it to work with us. How we do our work will reflect on the one we claim to worship. So Christians, we must live an earnest life, but we also must live a life of imitation. We have to learn, or we have to live a life of imitation. And verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to, there was a kind of an obligation, a sense of duty that you ought to imitate us. He says, I've given you an example. All you have to do is be an example or, or to live the example that I've said to be an imitator of me. I remember when I, we had little kids, um, they don't like me as much as they used to, um, but 
and many of y'all have been in that same situation where your kids, you may have walked home and, and uh, I've, I've walked into the door before and I've seen my kid uh, wearing one of my baseball hats or my, my, my hats and then he, with his, his feet, his small little feet in my shoes. And he's walking around like this, trying to be dad and telling everybody else what to do because that's what happens in my house, right? So he's trying to be me and he's walking around and it's like the cutest thing in the world until they take your shoes or your boots and they put them in the, in the uh, tub and they begin to fill it up with water. And then you're like, you're so cute then, and then you're having to pour out water and let your, like, they're awesome, and they try to be like you, and that's what kids do. I remember when I was a youth pastor in Alabama, we had a, um, like most churches do, we had a uh, Halloween thing. And one of my students, his name was Cole. Cole came dressed up to the church-wide Halloween party thing that we did for the community, and at first, I'm a, I was a little bit slow that night. I wouldn't fire and synapse it in all, in all cylinders that night. But, but Cole had dressed up, had worn a costume, but I didn't know what it was. And I look at him, and I go, Cole? I said, what are you, like, what is your costume? And he looks at me, dead serious, and he goes, well, I'm you, Pastor Will. And I said, you're me? And I look at it. It took me a second, but he was wearing a Boston's Red Sox hat. He had painted a beard on. I mean, he had the Pastor Will starter kit and everything. The hoodie, the boots, had the beard, the hat, and he was me for Halloween. He would say the things that I would always say, you know, glad you could see me, those types of things. He would say all kinds of things, being me for the evening. And to be honest, it was quite funny, especially if you knew the kid. You'd be like, eh, okay, it's funny. He was a great kid. But he was imitating, trying to be like something that he had seen. And Paul says as Christians, as a church, that we are to follow his example, that we are to imitate him. He says, why? Because we were not idle, the end of verse 7. We were not idle. We were not lazy. We were not out of order. We weren't disorderly when we were with you. Not only that, Paul says in verse 8, he says, We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. He says, We didn't take anything from anybody. We didn't, we didn't eat your food. But what we did is we, we worked tirelessly. Blood, sweat, and tears we worked. And we worked night and day. For what purpose is that? Is that so that he would not be, that he and his, his, his buddies, Paul and Silas, would not be a burden to anybody? Verse 9, he follows up. He says, it was not because we do not have that right. He's referring to the right to, to basically allow the church to serve him. He says, we have that right. As a, as a preacher of the gospel, as a worker for the Lord who's coming and he's being an itinerant preacher and pastor of these churches and church planning, he says, we had every right to accept gifts from you and for you to take care of us. He says, but we, we didn't want to be a burden to you. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus is sending out his disciples and he tells them, and remain in the same house. Eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. He says, if you're going to go preach the gospel, stay in the house and allow them to serve you. 
Galatians 6, verse 6, let the one who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Timothy, verse 5, 17, following, let the elders who rule, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul here says that although he had the right to accept support for his ministry, he chose not to be a burden on the church, but to give them an example to imitate. So Paul here, being a more mature believer, set the example for the young church to follow. We're we're very, very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, be imitators of me. The best part is the following few words, as I am of Christ. So Paul is sitting here saying, listen, I am focused clearly on what it is to follow Jesus, and therefore you can follow me. Why can you follow me? Why can you live by my example? Because I am living and I am following Christ. I'm imitating Christ. So church here, the example here has been set before us that we must live a worthy life. A life worthy of imitation. And this is hard work. It's constant work. It's something that has to be conscious, that we have to be conscious of every second of every day. Because it's hard work. It's difficult work. But it is a work that will always point back to Jesus. So Christians, we must live an earnest life. We have to live a life of imitation. And we must live an accountable life. Paul says in in verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, again, these marching orders, That if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now that sounds awful harsh. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And what we have to understand about this and and need need to really understand and take to heart that Paul is not writing to just everybody. He is writing specifically to the church, to you and I. He's not talking about the people who are on the side of the streets who need help. Where we drive by all the time, oh, they just need to get a job. They just need to get a job. If they would spend all this time that they're out here flying their sign, if they would just go get a job, we say that, it's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about that. As believers, yes, we use discernment, but we should care for people, especially those that aren't, I mean, those who are outside the church, we should care for them, we should love them, we should be gracious and and support them and help them and do what we can to meet those needs with discernment. But what Paul here is specifically talking about, he's talking about you and I. He's talking about Christians. And he says that if you're not willing to work, don't eat. What he's referring to this, what he's referring to here are those people within our congregation who can work, who can do things, who can provide for themselves, yet they choose not to because they're lazy or they're idle. He says, don't let them eat. He's not talking about the widow or the widower who's having a hard time in life. The church comes, comes by beside them and, and walks with them. Eastwood is incredible 
does an incredible job walking with those people and trying to meet the needs of folks in our church who need help. But what Paul here is saying is like, hey, if you're able and you're not doing what it is that we have commanded you to do, not willing to work, then don't, don't let him eat. In other words, Christians, we shouldn't go out of our way to help them if they're not willing to try to provide them for themselves. It's a harsh command. But he continues, he said, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, that you're, we're being lazy. You're not busy at work, but instead you're busy bodies. Because you're not, you're not working hard, keeping yourself busy, you're getting, all, you're, you're getting up in the mix of everybody else. You're all up in their business and they don't want you there. He says, for we hear, at the beginning of that verse, in verse 11, like, it's this thing that just continually happens. They keep hearing these stories about you. He's saying it's not all of y'all, but it's some of y'all are, are continually walking in idleness. That this is a character issue. Paul, again, is not, not telling us that we, we shouldn't care for those who had honest needs and who could not work. Passage after passage that, that tells us where we are to take care of those in the church who have honest needs. But the church in itself, you and I, are not obligated to help those who are able to work but refuse to work. Those who refuse to work become busybodies. They have all that time on their hands and all they're doing is interfering with people's business. What does this do? It all boils back to this one thing. What does this do? Is that this type of character creates a bad testimony to the unsaved. It's a, it's a bad testimony for the unsaved. When we as believers don't do our very best and work incredibly hard, keep our mouths shut and our head down, right? Like when we can't work in such a fashion that brings honor to the Lord, it is a bad testimony to the people in which we work around. But he says, now this such person, in verse 12, he says this busybodies, he's, who he's referring to. Now if you're a busybody, we command and encourage in the name or in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, head down, mouth shut, and to earn their own living. In other words, that they're not dependent upon anybody. They're not taking advantage of anybody, that they can care for themselves, take care of themselves, and then be a blessing to those who can't take care of themselves. The NIV says that they would actually settle down and earn the bread that they eat. In verse 13, as for you, brothers, talking about the church, again, remember, he says, do not grow weary, do not grow tired. Do not give up. I'm talking about the ones who are trying to work. There seems to be a little bit of discouragement among believers that they're having to do a lot of work. He says, but do not grow weary. Do not give up in doing good. Do not give up in trying to follow the commands that we have given you. Do not grow tired from pulling your own weight. He goes even further in his instruction by saying that in verse 14, that if anyone who does not obey, who does not act on what is heard, 
does not obey what we say in this letter, take a mental note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Man, this seems harsh. So if this person is lazy, they're, they're, they're walking in idleness. This is a character issue. He says here to, to, take, to take a mental note, to jot it down, and then to have nothing to do with them. This idea of just keeping them at arm's length. You just want to keep them at arm's length. Why? Because we don't want that character. We don't want to be associated with laziness and character. We want to be hard workers who work in a way that brings glory and honor to the Lord. But what does he say at the end? He says, it have nothing to do with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. This isn't a public shaming. This isn't church discipline where we stand him up and we say, this dude's lazy. Pray for him. You know, that's what we do, right? Well, listen, my brother, he's a little lazy. Pray for him. Whatever that may be, right? This isn't a public shaming in any way, shape, or form. It's not an excommunication as some people believed. But it's a, it's, a, it's a feeling based on his actions. He's ashamed of his actions. And in, in, in being ashamed, he is brought to a change of mind and a change of action. In verse 15, he says, do not regard him as an enemy. So in other words, he's not excommunication. He's not a part of us anymore. Do not regard him as one who doesn't know Jesus. But warn him. Hold him accountable as a brother. He is still a member of the family of God. He makes it clear that the offender is still to be regarded as one of the family. And so, friends, this morning, if we learn anything from God's word this morning is that we are to live Christian, that we are to live accountable lives. We should be people who welcome accountability as well as extend accountability to those who need it. We should live accountable lives. We should work hard for our hard work is a testament of what it is that we believe and who it is that we worship. Church, the gospel is to saturate every aspect of our life. It's not to be just one or two hours on a Sunday morning, but every single fabric of our lives. For many of us in this room, we spend 40 plus hours every single week in a mission field. How we spend those hours is a witness to those around us. As Christians, we don't, we don't work for the man. We don't work for the guy who's signing our paychecks. but rather we work diligently so to bring glory to Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter three, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we work hard. We don't work hard as if we're trying to earn Christ's approval, but rather out of gratitude for the work that he has already done on our behalf. We work out of gratitude for the salvation that he has provided for us. And so this week, what does that look like this week? If you were to walk into your place of employment, 
And when you punch in, you said, I'm not working for this dude, but I'm working for Jesus. And I'm going to be an example to all of these people, this mission field that God has planted me in, about God's grace and his mercy and his love. What would that look like if that was for us Christians in this room, if we were to live that this week? When the hard times come, the difficult times come of that job and you just want to kind of throw up your hands and say, peace, I'm out, chuck the deuces and you're out of here. What would that look like if rather than getting so incredibly frustrated at your job that you just put your head down and you just continue to work and you were a testimony, a living testimony of, what, of who and what Jesus has done in your life to those around you? What if that was our mission field? What, what if that's what we did? How would that transform our workplace to live an example to those around us who do not know Jesus? There are many in this room today who you, you work incredibly hard. However, you, you're far from God. When we talk about being far from God, that just the Bible calls that sinner. It's just somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. You work incredibly hard. But why is it that you work so hard? Are you working for the praise of those around you? Because if we're working for the praise of those of us around you, it's, it, it, it's, it's fleeting. It will never fully satisfy. We have to continually seek the praise of people, and we are never fully satisfied. It's here one minute and gone the next. Many of us in this room have worked to earn God's approval, to earn the favor of the Lord. We have to remind ourselves, and we need to remind ourselves this morning, that there is nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God. It is for that reason that we can't earn his favor. It is for that reason that God, the creator of all things, left heaven and became a man, Jesus. He died a death to, to appease the wrath of God, which you and I deserve because we sinned against him so that those who seek forgiveness and repent of their sins will be given a gift, nothing that could have been earned, be given a gift, the gift of eternal life. If you're here today and you're far from God and you realize that this morning that you're working for the approval of God, it is my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit is wrecking your heart. And that this morning, you realize that you're a sinner and that you need this free gift, a gift that you cannot earn, that's only given to you when you repent of your sin and trust Jesus for salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with him, if you've not accepted this free gift, we wanna give you that opportunity before you leave. I would love to have the opportunity to walk through that with you. And here in just a few minutes, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to worship one song one more time before we leave together. I'll be down here at the front. Pastor Jeremy will be down here as well. If you would like to talk with one of us about how you can come to faith in Christ, we want to give you that opportunity this morning. And it is my prayer as it is every Sunday morning that today would be the day of your salvation. Christian, if you're in this room, may tomorrow be the start of a new day, of a new life, as you strive to work for the Lord and be 
a living testimony, a working testimony, if you will, to those around you, that they may see your good works and bring glory to God in heaven. That is my prayer today.